I want to talk about anointing versus gifting this morning. And I've got a lot to say, so I'm going to move quite quickly. Gifting and anointing are often confused, but they're not the same. The anointing of God is vital for the church of Jesus Christ. Gifting is useful, but anointing is essential. A gift will fill a room. It will impress, it will inspire, it will please and motivate us. An anointing brings transformation and renewal. Isaiah 27, uh, oh, sorry, 1027 and 61 verse 1 tells us that it's the anointing that breaks the yoke and the chain and the bondage over our lives. The anointing of the Lord, the power of God that is resting upon a ministry that sets people free and makes people whole and secure and empowered for service. It's the anointing that does that. And if that's true, we have to ask ourselves why there are so many people in the global church today who have been in the church for decades and are still struggling under the same yokes and the same chains and the same bondages that they had when they first got saved. Could it be because the church of Christ is full of gifted people but not nearly enough anointed people? It's a question. Gifting is very attractive. We all love to listen to gifted speakers and gifted worship leaders. We all like to be looked after by gifted listeners and caregivers. It feels good and it inspires and, dare I say, it entertains us as well. Anointed people, on the other hand, aren't always that gifted. This is something we need to try and get our heads around. God chooses the most unlikely people to carry his anointing and to bring transformation. Now, I, I was brought to Christ by a, a very unlikely 23-year-old. Sarah Rothman, now called Sarah Reed, uh, who I have all the time in the world for, was a novice youth worker when she took on our little youth group. And she often uh, wound us all up, if I'm honest, she was uh, this amazing person, but she, she was incredibly challenging and, and quite intense. But she had a phenomenal personality, but what she really had was an anointing from God. Grace over her life. And pretty much everyone in that youth group got radically saved. And a number of us went on to give our whole lives to making disciples as a vocation. It wasn't a gift that did it. It was an anointing that was upon her ministry. And we could look at loads of examples like this. How many of you know about John Wimber? Hans? So a lot of you know about John Wimber. Now, John Wimber was an unlikely vessel in many ways. Uh, he, was, it, he was quite a hillbilly. Um, he was not that interesting to look at particularly. Uh, he was an average teacher, Bible teacher. But when he moved into ministry, when he said, come Holy Spirit, and he began to listen to the Lord for words of knowledge and minister healing, there was an anointing that came upon the man. And he was able to minister the grace of God in an incredibly powerful and effective way. It's worth watching some of the John Wimber stuff on YouTube. There's an unmistakable power on him. 
I could talk about many others who have come from humble beginnings, people who you and I wouldn't choose, who have no apparent gifting or have nothing about them that might cause them to be chosen to carry God's blessing and power. Yet church history, and indeed biblical history, is littered with such cases. Wonderful, ordinary people who have left an extraordinary mark on the church of Jesus Christ. And it presents a challenge to us as a church. Because it's easy to promote and to appoint gifted people. Everybody understands that. It's harder to spot and appoint anointed people. It takes spiritual eyes to see them. But I want you to leave here this morning knowing that God sees your heart. He sees the grace that he's placed upon your life. And it doesn't matter if no one else gets it or sees what God sees. All that matters is that you learn with him about the anointing that God has already given you. Turn to 1 Samuel and chapter 16. We're going to look at this anointing passage where King David was anointed for his ministry as king of Israel while he was still a boy. And there's tons that we can learn from this narrative. So I just wanted to read it through, and then we're going to pull some bits out of this story in the Old Testament. So 1 Samuel and chapter 16, and from verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, You have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. But Samuel asked, how can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong? they asked. Do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to come to the sacrifice too. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shimea. But Samuel said, neither is this one the one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all of seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the field watching the sheep and goats. Send of him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. So David stood there among his brothers. And Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. 
And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. So here we have a clear story about God's anointing given to us from Scripture. It's a story of someone who has learned to hear God and to spot his anointing, to spot his grace at work upon someone's life. The prophet Samuel is a seer. He sees that the Spirit of God first has clearly departed from Saul, and he understands the instructions that God has given him to anoint this new king of Israel. He knows that this anointing is going to seal the future for his country, because once that special grace of God rests upon the next individual, it will set this person apart for the purposes of God, and the anointing itself will make a way for what Samuel sees will, will come to pass. It's a spiritual act of treason. And Samuel is afraid that Saul is going to kill him for it. What does that tell me? That tells me that the people in this story took the anointing very seriously. This was no small thing. This was no uh, take it or leave it kind of arrangement. Actually, the people in this story took anointing incredibly seriously. And and, uh, do you know who else took anointing very, very seriously? Jesus Christ. Just as an aside, Jesus himself thought he, though he was fully God, he relied heavily upon the anointing of the Holy Spirit to minister the kingdom. When he was in Nazareth, he stood up just as I'm speaking to you today and he said, pass me the scroll of Isaiah. He read from Isaiah 61 and he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, to set the captives free, to open the eyes of the blind, to proclaim this favorable year of the Lord. Then he closed the scroll and sat down, and he said, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. That's like a one-verse sermon right there. Drop the mic. <laughs> he's, he's done his job. And they were in uproar about it, because they could not believe that he would have the arrogance to say such a thing. But what was he saying? He was saying that God has put a special grace upon my life. There is an anointing upon my life to achieve these things for the kingdom. This is, not, this is something that God has given for me to do. And that which you see and hear in my miracles and in the work that I do and in this message that I'm proclaiming with great power and authority, that comes from God the Father and the anointing of the Holy Spirit that he's placed upon my life. So if Jesus needed to rely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit, how much more does you and me need to rely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to do any lasting good in this world. So let's draw some things out of this passage about how anointing works. The first thing to understand is that it's God who does the choosing. Verse 1, God said, I have chosen. Verses 8 to 10, the Lord has not chosen. It's God who does the choosing. He chooses certain people for certain things. We can't all do everything. We can't even do what we like. There's all sorts of things we might like to do. There's all sorts of visions that we might have for our own lives or ways that we might want to operate in the Holy Spirit. But we can't choose what God will grace us with. And we can't always understand it either. God went in search of a king and he passed over the impressive one and the talented one and the influential one. And Samuel again and again said, what about this one? He looks awesome. And God said, no, 
They may be gifted or impressive or look the part, but I have not chosen them. And it's vital for our walk with God that we understand this today. When God chooses us for a task, you don't need to be the most gifted, the most talented, or the most impressive. You don't even have to be the one that you yourself would choose. If he's chosen you for a task, and you know it in your spirit, despite all your weaknesses and your limitations and all criticism, you will be able to do what God has called you to do. I love this saying, there is always grace for your race. Ever heard of that? There is always grace for your race. God doesn't just choose us for ta- God doesn't choose us for tasks that he hasn't already graced us to complete. That he hasn't already given us the ability and the gifts and the power that we need. And when we are working under his grace, when we're working under his gifting, his blessing, his anointing, we feel it. It's not the same as working hard. It's not the same as trying to be impressive. It's not the same as trying to achieve in our own strength, which can be incredibly stressful. There is a difference. When we are working under the anointing of God, under his grace and under his blessing, there is an ease to what we do. There is a joy to what we do. It's what Jesus meant when he said, take my yoke upon you, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Those are plowing terms. In other words... It's a task that requires incredible power. That's what plowing is. It's a task that requires incredible power. But Jesus was saying, under my anointing, the task that I give you is going to be easy. My burden is going to be light. Do you know that God has already planned wonderful, miraculous stuff for you to do? Do you know that? Plans that require great power to achieve, but that you will find easy because you have an anointing for it. Our job is to let him guide us into what he has already planned rather than to try and achieve it ourselves. I once saw an interview with a music video director, Steve Barron. He was the director of the music video for Michael Jackson's Billie Jean. Does anyone remember the Billie Jean video? I mean, this is going back to 1982. I had to see it on YouTube because I'm far too young. Um, <laughs> But I remember the song growing up, and uh, <laughs> it was the second single on Michael's Thriller album. And uh, in this video, it's, it's worth a watch. Go home uh, after the service and watch the Billie Jean video. Uh, it's worth a watch. Michael is this like magic person that is like walking down the street, and w- whatever he touches lights up. So he leans on a lamppost, and the whole lamppost lights up, and he sees... Uh, uh, something on the street and he touches it and it lights up but the cool bit is wherever he walks the pavement lights up and uh, in this interview with um, this guy uh, what was his name again Steve Barron I remember him saying um, that that it got pretty awkward because shooting this video Michael was such an incredible dancer he could dance all over the set and he was constantly knocking out his moves dancing all over the set and it just wasn't working Wherever Michael went, nothing lit up. And about, about uh, a, a few hours into filming and them getting nowhere, he had to take Michael aside and say, Michael, I'm really sorry, but you've got to listen to me. If we're going to make this video work, you have to step where I have pre-lit the pavement. You may be an incredible dancer, but you've got to go where I've already programmed. 
And then they did one more shoot, and of course, Michael nailed it, stepped exactly where the lights were going to shine. Do you know what? God has pre-lit a pavement for your life. If we want our lives to light up, if we want what we touch and where we go to and where we stand to light up with the power of God, we have to know where the director has pre-lit the path. You might be able to dance all over the stage of your life. You might be able to do incredible things. You might have incredible gifting and, talented, gifting and talent. But if you're going to see things light up with the power of God, you need to know where he wants you to walk. It says in Ephesians 2.10 that God has prepared good works for you to do that you may, may walk in them. There is always grace for your race. There are lots of people out there trying to run a race that they think they want or they've been elevated to a role or a position that God never chose for them and they wonder why their body is crumbling and their emotions are crumbling and their relationships are crumbling. They wonder why there doesn't seem to be any grace over what they're doing and it's because they're trying to run a race that's where there's no grace. God didn't say that was your race. And when you're in that position, it's really hard. Sometimes life kind of funnels you in these directions that you kind of go along with. And it's really easy to end up in a place that actually you feel was never a good fit for you. And you're trying to be something. You're trying to fulfill something. You're trying to achieve something. And actually there just isn't, doesn't seem to be a grace in your life to fulfill it. And at those times, we should be able to be secure enough in God to ask the questions, God, is this where you wanted me to be? Or is this just where life has kind of funneled me into? And if that's you, if you feel like you're a sort of square peg in a round hole wherever you are, just know that God hasn't given up on you. He can help you to find to, uh, a better place, a place that he has prepared for you. And we'd love to help you with that. We'd love to pray along that journey with you, if that's you. There is only grace for the race that God has prepared for you. And the quickest way to start running your race is to look to God straight in the eye and to say, I admit, I often compare myself to others and try to become someone I'm not. I'm never going to find peace and strength and anointing that way. Show me the things I'm running after that are not your choice for my life, and I'll drop them. It's a difficult prayer to pray, but it's worth it. We need to be able to say to God, in place of that, I believe you have a race that is unique to me. I believe there is grace for me to do what you want me to do. Show me the steps you want me to take that you have pre-lit for me because I want my life to be a clear demonstration of your goodness and power. So all of that was point number one. It's God who does the choosing. We need to come to God if we want to walk in the anointing that he has for us. Point number two, we don't need to be visible to be significant. We live in a culture that is obsessed with significance and recognition. Instagram, Facebook, the hashtag selfie is the most used hashtag on the planet. We are probably the most narcissistic generation that has ever been. <laughs> Everybody seems to want a bit of the spotlight to show off their lifestyles and abilities. And we do it for recognition and a feeling of significance. 
We live in a generation that can capture a moment, stick a filter on it, and share it with the world in seconds so that we can be as visible and recognized as possible. Many manage their local celebrity PR very diligently. They make sure there's something going out every day that will remind our, our local followers that we are really celebrity status. Why do we do that? I think it's because people really desperately confuse visibility with significance. People think that the more visible you are, the more you make the media, whether it's national media or social media, and the more followers you have, the more significant you are. But you know what? Not everyone has the same visibility. But God does not place greater value on one human being over another. There's something about being in the presence of God where all of that clamoring becomes silent. And we are all accepted just as we are. We can all fall into the trap that if people don't recognize what I'm doing, then what I'm doing must be insignificant. No. That's just our own sense of self-importance messing with us. And the root of that is pride. The truth is that though I'm one of the ones up here with the microphone each week, which makes me more visible in this context, I'm no more significant than all the people that are out of sight right now, making our Sunday mornings happen. Our youth session leaders, our children's workers, whoever popped out and got the milk before the service, our wonderful tech team at the back here, our lovely cleaner who makes the place look, it look so nice. In fact, I'm quite sure that when it comes to the time for rewards in heaven to be handed out, we're going to be shocked by how the Lord hands out rewards to his people, people who have worshipped and served and sacrificed in obscure and hidden places of the world. Some of those who have served from the platform under the spotlights of this world will get little because the Lord will say, surely I say unto you, they've already received their reward in full. Many are drawn by the fading glory of recognition in this life, like moths to a flame. But the kingdom, in the kingdom, the thinking around these things is different. We don't need visibility or recognition to be significant. We were born significant. The moment we became born again. The moment we became children of the king. We are the apple of his eye. We are the object of his affection and his purposes. And we don't need to showcase our gifts because they are worthless compared to the grace that God wants to release through us. And we don't need to go after applause, likes, comments, or followers. They are addictive and they leave us with nothing on the day when the Lord honors his faithful ones. And thinking of recognition, sometimes I think when we were never supposed to be as aware as we are about what everybody else is doing. It's not always helpful, is it? We may have had the experience of scrolling down and seeing a party plastered all over Facebook or Instagram that all of your friends seems to be at but you weren't invited to. Or the conference or the work lunch or whatever. And it leaves you battling with rejection and betrayal and worthlessness, etc. And our teens have to process this often. What if David, on that day that the prophet Samuel came to anoint the next king of Israel at his house, had a smartphone in the field and saw Abinadab post a photo of his family gathered around the kingmaker, 
Hashtag family, hashtag king choosing. <laughs> What's that going to do to the lad? Well, thanks a lot. You didn't even bother to come and get me. But no, David was happy. Why? Because he didn't know about the party he wasn't invited to. I want to be that guy, actually. I want to be the guy that's completely happy because I don't know about the parties that I'm not invited to. <laughs> he didn't know about his brother's opportunities or the hype in his father's house. Why? Because he was already in the presence of God himself and he was busy getting on with what God, God had called him to do. In obscurity, fighting lions and bears, caring for the sheep, writing incredible original songs for the audience of one. What a legend. He wasn't looking at everybody else. He, he was fully invested in running his race and he was happy because of it. And that was more attractive and useful to God than all the talent and apparent influence of his impressive brothers. If we're going to run the race God has given us, we're going to have to be careful who we follow. If we're made aware of anything on social media platforms that doesn't build us up or spur us on, we need to go for unfollow or delete. Okay? And if we can't have a precious moment with our loved ones or enjoy a moment of achievement without posting it, We've got problems. I'm allowed a little rant from time to time. <laughs> Posting every achievement is a widely accepted form of boasting. Enjoy the recognition while it lasts, because that's your reward in full. Okay? Can we all agree on that? Yeah. And as for those people who publish their intimate moments between couples and close friends... Oh! Dear. oh gets me going. Big shout out to my wonderful husband who has prepared this lovely meal this evening. Love him so much. And guess what he told me? I don't want to know what he told you. Is nothing sacred? Is this what intimacy has been reduced to? Are we to look at every beautiful moment as an opportunity to grab it, stick a filter on it, and parade it before anybody and everybody? Where is privacy? Where is the secret understanding between lovers? Where is true intimacy that is too precious to share and could never be understood by outside eyes? What we do in secret when no one is looking is what add, adds real value to relationship. It's not for anybody else. What we do in secret when nobody is looking, that is what adds real value to a relationship. And what we do between just us and God is what he values most. It's what determines the measure of anointing we can carry and the opportunities that he can safely give us. We could say that only when we found our significance in obscurity between us and God are we ready to cope with the pressures of visibility. So that's the second thing. Third thing, first impressions don't always count and those in authority don't always get it right. In this story, Jesse, the father of the house, didn't recognize the grace over his own son. The prophet Samuel got it wrong. He saw Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Fathers get it wrong. 
and don't see the grace over our lives. Prophets and talent spotters can get it wrong and call out those around us and not see us at all. They don't usually mean to. Their hearts are usually in the right place. But you know what? If this story teaches us anything, is that God never gets it wrong. He knows what he's looking for, and he knows where to find it. He's not looking to recruit the impressive. He's looking to develop the anointed. It's a completely different way of shaping the future. Most leaders and recruiters on the planet are simply looking for the next person. The music industry is looking for the next Justin Bieber or the next Ed Sheeran. The church can fall into the same trap of looking for the next whatever, the next Darlene Check, the next Billy Graham. When we look to appoint someone to a role, it's easy to look for the one that is the younger version of the last person that fulfilled this role. And this is what was happening with Samuel when he was in Jesse's house. He looked at Eliab and said, you look just like Saul. Surely this guy is the next one. He must be God's choice. But no, God never said, I want to raise up the next king. He says, I'm going to raise up a new king. And that's the way the Lord works with the next thing that he's doing, with the new thing that he's doing. He doesn't say, behold, I am doing the next thing. He says, behold, I am doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? And most of the planet isn't perceiving it because it's looking for the same old thing in a younger body. God does not feel the need to repeat the gifts of the past in the same way. God doesn't do the next of anyone. He always wants to make a new wineskin for the new wine that he wants to pour out. And that's good news for you and me. That means there's a place for me, even if I don't look like any of the impressive people that have gone before me. I can come as me, because God's looking for something new. If you ever look at all the talent around you and think to yourself, I can't compete, we can remind ourselves in that moment that it's okay. God hasn't made me for that competition. It's not my game. It's the world's sick game, and it has nothing to do with me. See, we are Romans 12 people. Romans 12 says, uh, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We just present ourselves, our bodies, this that we are, just as we are, as a living sacrifice daily. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will know what the will of God is, that which is good and perfect and pleasing. His good and perfect will, that which is better than all the world that can offer. And it is uniquely gifted to you as the path that God has pre-lit for your life. Last point. Point number four. A gifted person can come forth quite quickly, but an anointed person takes time to develop and mature. There's no overnight successes in the kingdom of God. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, it says that David was 37 when he became ruler of all Israel. Yet he was just 17 in this story we've just read of being anointed as a boy. That's 20 years and 20 chapters between anointing and appointing. What was God doing in those 20 years? He was developing David to be able to carry the full anointing that he had already given to him when he was a boy. 
This is a process that God is taking him through to become the person that he was anointed to be. And how did he do that? Read those 20 chapters over the next couple of weeks. And they are so unkind to David. It was struggle. Those 20 chapters are just full of really unjust, unkind struggle. It's not fair when his brothers ridicule him, when all he's done is deliver their lunch. It's not fair when King Saul requires him to be in his room to play for him and then throws a spear at him. It's not fair. It's not fair when he's on the run for years, blamed for things that are not his fault. It's not fair when all his friends and family have their stuff plundered by the enemy and they blame him for it. It's not fair. Do you know what? Life's not fair. Have you worked that out yet? Life can be deeply unfair. He had to go through those experiences because life isn't fair. People will be promoted over you. Friends will sometimes not be there for you. Plans will sometimes go bad and not work, even though you've worked so hard to make them happen. And it's not fair. It can be the same in, in uh, a workplace or a community. Or in church. You, can be, you can't be in the same place for more than 10 years and not experience some unfair moments. How we deal with it is what is important to God. If you're the kind of person that jumps ship every time there's something you don't like, guess what? There's still something that God needs to forge in you. When God wanted to forge faithfulness in David, he took him back out from the place of anointing and celebration and placed him back with the sheep. He took him back to obscurity. And while his brothers were all doing stuff on the front line, David was told to be the delivery boy for them. It's easy to go from obscurity to become the chosen one. It takes character and faithfulness to be be the chosen one who is willing to go back to serving in in obscurity. Amen? To go to the lowest point again, when you think you're something special. So when he delivered those goods to his brothers, he was met with abuse. God allows us to experience injustice and rejection and obscurity because it's at those times we have a unique opportunity to confirm in our hearts who we are really working for. Really hard to know who you're working for when everything is going well and you're being celebrated. When you're being super successful. You have to work out who you're working for when everything has turned against you and gone horribly wrong and life is incredibly unfair. Sometimes the only reason we will keep going is because we remember that we do what we do because we're doing it for him, because he's called us to do it. If we're working for anything else, we will give up or we will move to a different job or a different church or whatever. If we're looking for recognition, we'll give up when less able people are promoted above us. If we're looking for the affirmation of man, we'll give up when we go unnoticed. If we're looking for wealth, we'll give up when our finances are drained. If we're looking for security in our community, we'll give up when our friends turn on us. These times will come, and there are moments of testing for our hearts. 
If we give up and run when we're tested in obscurity, we will be eaten alive when we are promoted to influence and visibility because we're going after all the wrong things. But if we can use these unfair times to remember that we do what we do out of an overflow of love for him and him alone, we won't give up. And in fact, the opposite happens. We learn to dig in with God and grow in faithfulness and Christ-like character. So here's the question. Will you trust God over the story of your life? Will you allow God to take you through the difficult process from anointing to appointing, however long that may be? Will you allow God to develop his image in you and to forge his character in you as a matter of priority? Will you focus less on gifting and appearances and more on anointing and readiness of heart? I believe that's what God needs us to do. Because he has power and anointing that he has assigned to us that is waiting to flow, waiting till we are ready. And the world doesn't need to see a more, more talent in the church. The world needs to see an anointed church rise again. Amen.